Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, a Hollywood screenwriter whose credits include Aquaman, Red Riding Hood, and this month's newest release, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. In today's conversation, David and I discuss a wide range of topics. From growing up in Ohio and stumbling into the film business as an assistant on the Shawshank Redemption, and what he learned from the mentorship of the film's writer-director, Frank Darabond. Also, David's experience collaborating with the mind behind The Conjuring movies, James Wan, who trusted David to take over screenwriting duties for the latest film, The Devil Made Me Do It, and why third installments specifically are crucial to forge the identity of a franchise. Plus, we discuss how David tries to haunt audiences and the psychology behind writing horror films. All of this and much more. If you enjoy the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes of the podcast. Look for Soundstage Access on Instagram to catch a preview of which guests we'll be interviewing next. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. David, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us. It's it's really a pleasure. I wanted to take things you know, all the way back in the beginning and in your first encounter with the film business, because I know that when you were living in Ohio, Shawshank Redemption was shooting there in the summer of 93, and you cold called the production and you got a job on that. And that led you to, you know, become Frank Darabont's assistant for five years, Frank Darabont being the writer and director. And it's a period that, from my understanding, is mainly after Shawshank and before Green Mile. And that allows you the opportunity to watch him work and yourself hone in your craft in as a screenwriter. So I was wondering, from Frank's style of writing to his take on character and story, what do you think were the most valuable lessons on a screenwriting level that you were taking away from that mentorship? Mm. Uh, Definitely his style of writing I adopted, I think, whether consciously or unconsciously, because the screenplay for Shawshank Redemption was probably one of the first... I mean, I, I had read screenplays before. I'd read, you know, Adventures in the Screen Trade. I'd seen the, you know, the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid text uh, printed in that book. But it was pretty uncommon to, like, you didn't have access to scripts like we do now, especially, like, in Ohio. There'd be, like, a film memorabilia thing that would come through our campus at Ohio State. And I, I would go there, and that guy would have, like, in, a, like, a banker's box, like, some old scripts that he'd Xeroxed from like 20,000 generations of Xeroxing ago. And I would grab those. But like when I was actually working on the movie, that was like the first time I like had read one that wasn't actually a movie yet, <laughs> right? And his approach to it was very different from anything I'd read. It's certainly like different from Bill Goldman's approach, which I was never able to like, he has such economy in his words and I just, that's not how my brain works. That's not how I, I see things. And Frank's approach to writing was very narrative. It was very much what you imagined the text would be if he was just sitting across from you telling you the story, right? It wasn't just like slug line and then action and slug line and then action. It was like trying to suck you in and get you emotionally involved in actually the writing of it. So that was really formative, I think, because I, I turned into someone who uses a lot of words (laughs) uh, to tell the story. And I think that that's where that came from. And I think the other thing during those five years, because he was, you know, between those two movies and just writing, I got to see, like you say, how the job that I wanted to actually do unfolds, right? At that age, I was still pretty young and I had gone to Hollywood and and moved from Ohio to LA and had in my mind, you know, I wanted to meet movie stars and be on movie sets. And, but like, that's not what you spend the bulk of your time doing as a writer. What I, what I was seeing was what I really wanted to do, which was seeing him write, you know, to, to see his process and to see really actually more than process. uh, The thing that was valuable to me was really seeing firsthand the emotional roller coaster of it 
to see the sort of highs and lows and realize, you know, this is an emotionally taxing business as well as just sort of creatively taxing. Your heart soars and then it's stomped on. And, you know, it's, it's you know, it was five years of seeing like the highs and lows. And I, that was really set my expectations somewhat. And I think helped me try to find my own way of dealing with that emotional roller coaster that I, that would, I would see him be on. You mentioned a lot about Frank's writing, but I know that you were doing a lot of writing yourself, you know, probably late at night. It's my understanding that you'd be writing and presenting and work. I wonder if looking back now, are you surprised by the kind of scripts that you started writing at the time? And why do you think Frank ultimately responded to one specific script that you handed over and he said, okay, now, now you're ready? You know, that's a good question. You know, I definitely think when I first started writing things, I definitely was more cognizant of how do I use this to break into the industry as opposed to here's this really good story I'm dying to tell. When you're on the outsides, I think sometimes you start with like, well, can this sell and then work backwards into it as opposed to here's something I care about and I don't care whether it gets made or not. I just need to write it. I think that was partially the difference. I mean, ultimately, like the thing I wrote that he was like, okay, this is better now, wasn't anything I could do anything with. It was like a, it was an X-Files spec. You know, it was back in, you know, the, when, when you would write a, you know, TV spec to send to, to try and have it be your, your calling card. But like the subject matter of it was something that I was really interested in and really felt like it was a compelling story to tell as opposed to, can I actually sell this? And I think I, there was just more of me in it. Ultimately, before I dive into specific projects, I wanted to ask you for a second about your career strategy early on and your relationship with Appian Way. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones who first produced Orphan, and from Orphan, then they ask you to adapt Red Riding Hood, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, which then leads to an executive for Warner Brothers bringing you on to Clash of the Titans. I wonder if in the years immediately before and after Orphan, when you're navigating writer's strike and maybe the fear of being typecast specifically into the horror genre, were you trying to maintain a kind of like a creative control over the screenplays you wanted to write as opposed to the ones that studio wanted to make you write? I honestly, (laughs) I had been trying to make a living at it for so long I was going where the work was. And, and, and to a certain extent, I still do. It was a lot of work for hire stuff, you know, because it was like when, when you pitch, they'll pick someone to do it, right? As opposed to what I had been doing up until that point, which was writing specs that nobody wanted to buy. Orphan was work for hire. It was a job that they already knew they were going to hire someone for. So it was really like, give us your take on the project. And, and honestly, also, I never really worried about typecasting or, or, or like being pigeonholed at all. Just because again, I, I'm going to do better at things I'm interested in than things I'm not interested in. And, and I was always interested in horror. And if that had been where I had stayed forever, I would have been fine with that. My end goal had always been to sort of get into sort of more tent poly kind of stuff. Cause that was the kind of thing that inspired me to, to want to write. And luckily that worked out because James Wan had sort of the same two interests, you know, which is horror and tentpoles. And it sort of evolved into that. And also, you know, like you mentioned, Wrath of the Titans, that was sort of like my first foray into that. So I kind of fell into the place that I am, but I don't think it's totally coincidence because like I said, like those were the genres I was interested in. Those were the ones I was going to perform best in. And that's, I think, probably why I got those phone calls. The first project I wanted to ask you about is Red Riding Hood. Again, to contextualize, they asked you to grab the short story and turn it into a movie. And that is a very ancient form of storytelling, you know, folklore and fairy tales. So I wonder for you, when you were researching that movie, obviously, what did you learn about folklore? And how were you trying to translate that into a more emotionally accessible Hollywood horror film? When they first came to me about doing that, it was very much, it was blank slate. Like they came to me and were like, we want to adapt the story of Red Riding Hood. We kind of don't care how you do it. Right. So I like watched every version of anything that ever had anything to do with Red Riding Hood. I read books that were studying it. 
I mean, they were like, it's modern day, it's outer space. Like, it would just do Red Riding Hood. And I'm a little old fashioned. I like, you know, it was like, I wound up feeling like I want to just do Red Riding Hood. I want to tell that story, but how do you turn that into a movie? So there are a couple things that stood out from my research because it is such an old story. It, it, its roots are, you know, spoken word. It's it's just this shared story as opposed to something was written down that is is published and, you know, has one form. It's changed over the years and it had different forms. And if you went back to the oldest version of it. The thing that struck me was in that oldest version of it, there's no woodcutter who chops down the door at the end and kills the wolf and saves her. She outsmarts the wolf and she runs away to the river where the women are washing the clothes and the women who are washing the clothes in the river like stretch this sheet over the river for her to crawl across. And then the and then when the wolf comes, they take it away and the wolf drowns. And so it's like this young girl solves her own problem, outsmarts the wolf, and is then rescued by these other women. I was like, why aren't we telling that version of the story anymore? Why is it this dude who's not even in the story knocking down the door at the, at the last minute? This felt like more of a real female hero story. And the other thing that, that came out of the research, too, was this idea of, you know, we have myths and we have fairy tales, Right. And we kind of dismiss fairy tales. Fairy tales are for children. We are going to tell these stories to the children, but myths, myths are for men. You know, it's Hercules and Perseus and, and, and slaying the dragon and, and whatever. And, you know, the research I had done was positing this idea that fairy tales are myths that got relegated because the protagonists are women. Right. The fairy tale is always about, you know, it's Cinderella. It's the domestic story. They're spinning wool or they have all these sort of domestic things that is the, the, the heart of the story. And they got kind of relegated in this sort of masculine world to like, oh, this is for girls and, and children. But they weren't. They, those characters were heroes in those stories. We just don't celebrate them as such. So part of the idea then was to imagine that this is a myth. If you were adapting a Greek myth, what would you look for? Well, you'd look for the archetypes. You would plot out a hero's journey and you would do all these things that are traditionally, you know, these masculine ideas of going on quests and things like that. I wanted to put Red Riding Hood on that trajectory with all these sort of deeply resonant archetypes that we find in, in mythology. So that was sort of the genesis of it and, and trying to figure out how, you know, we could tap into this sort of mythic aspect of it, of what is, you know, ostensibly a children's story. During the week of the Blood Moon, the werewolf may pass his curse on with a single bite. You will never truly be safe. We are safe now. I killed the wolf in his lair. The cave at Mount Grimoire. You have been deceived by this beast from the very start. It made you think he'd lived on Mount Grimoire so that you would not look for it in the most obvious place. The wolf lives here. In this village, among you, the real killer could be your neighbor, your best friend, even your wife. I'm interested to hear your process in regards to constructing story. My first quote of yours for today, quote, To this day I return to masters like Sid Field. When I'm starting out on an idea, I draw a line, divide three acts, and drop in my plot points, knowing that if I can hang a story on those six points, I got something. Close quote. So what is your relationship with script structure, and when do you feel like you have an idea which is fleshed out enough to be turned into a movie? Oh, okay. Uh, the first part of that is my relationship to structure. I'm not quite as rigid as I used to be. I used to have to be very, very rigid and have things very well plotted out right from the start or I couldn't get started. I always come back to structure and that diagram and figuring out what those points are because like looking back at all of my scripts, right? And there's garbage and there's the ones that are better. And the thing I think I figured out was if your script has a solid structure, if it's hitting those act breaks at the right point and the right plot turns are happening at the exact at the right places, even if you screw everything else up, it feels like a movie. You just sort of innately understand, aha, I'm turning into act three. You know, I've hit the midpoint. I'm going into act two. And just it works subconsciously. It, on no sort of conscious level are you aware of this, but it feels 
feels like a movie. And so I always start there in that, like, if all goes wrong, it is at least going to feel like a movie. Whereas, you know, you can write amazing scenes and a lot of amazing characters and amazing dialogue. And if it doesn't have a structure and starts to feel like it's wandering and it's rambling and you don't know where it's going and you don't really trust where it's going, you kind of lose track of it. And it doesn't feel like a movie anymore. The, The structure is basically what I feel helps the reader feel like the train is on the tracks, right? Like as long as you blow by the stops you thought you were going to hit, you know that that train is on the track. And like the, the trick is, of course, not to become predictable with that, to try and subvert it eventually. But the structure, I feel like without that, I don't know how to tell that story and make it feel like a movie anymore. Oh, the other part of the question was when I feel like I have, I feel like the script is ready to go when I become aware of the fact that my research is actually procrastination, there's a point where it's just like, I have to know everything. I have to have it all fleshed out. I, have to, I haven't read this book yet. I haven't read that book yet. And at a certain point, you realize I'm just trying to not write and it's time to go. Now I, I do a little bit less prep and I just try to get enough mass to the story that if I start, it will start accumulating and the snowball will start rolling and I've got enough faith in the process now that I, I, I know I'm going to get to fade out. So I'm not as worried about, you know, making sure I've figured all my index cards out. You spoke about getting to fade out, which brings us to, you know, first draft and, and the process of rewriting. Quote, the first draft is always for me. I spent so much time as a writer not getting things produced. I ended up setting my bar of expectation very low, knowing that once creatives get involved, everyone's going to have an opinion. By the time a film is released, I have to remind myself, it may have been my script, but it's now not my movie, close quote. And so I'm just fascinated about rewriting because speaking to different people, our friend James Vanderbilt expressed that, you know, his first drafts are overly too long all the time. So he doesn't mix drinking and writing, but in, in that case, he enjoys a scotch and goes through a printed copy of the script with a red pen, which I thought was a fascinating way of just trimming stuff down. So what is your process as you go from a first to a second to a third draft, choosing what ideas to take out and which ones to build more on? My first draft is always long, but also the first draft is just, it's about just finishing it, right? Because when it's not finished, it's a chore. It's hard. It's, you, you sit down and you're like, I have nothing. I can't show anybody anything. I, there's nothing here. Uh, even if you're halfway through the script. And so... I just plow through it. I very rarely, if ever, read anything I've written as I'm going. I just, I sit down and I pick up where I left off and I move forward and I never look back. And I really try as hard as I can to just go with my gut and the first version that pops in my head of everything. And that tends to be really overlong. I'm, I'm kind of directing it while I'm writing it. And incorporating every single idea I have. And so, you know, my first drafts can be huge. You know, my, my first drafts are, they're, they're, they're truly, I, I'm not even gonna tell you how long some of them are because it's really, really embarrassing, but they always come back to 120 because in there, there's a movie, right? I feel like one, one I'm not gonna have the exact quote and I, but I can't remember where I read this, but it was very helpful to me was to think of it as sculpting, right? You sit down with this giant cube of granite and you start hammering away at it and you're chipping it down and you get down to the first version of it is sort of a human shape, right? And then you move in and you get a little bit more fine with it. And that's, okay, now I'm seeing the contours and what it's going to be. And you eventually get down to the point where you've polished it into what you originally had. That's the best way I can think of describing how I go through those drafts. It's just like, it's just, it's raw and then it's less raw and it's eventually becomes this refined document. That's maybe only a page or two over 120 (laughs) as opposed to what we started off with. I wonder how does your rewriting differ when you're writing your own solo screenplays as opposed to being as part of a larger group? Are you ever given little goalposts and parameters in regards to what you can or cannot change when rewriting other people? First thing is, it's not always easy to do because you are rewriting someone, but you all, I I try to be like respectful of that writer. 
if I'm going to replace a joke and there's already a joke here, I have to really, really believe that joke is better. I don't like to just get my fingerprints on it. You know, I want to keep what was working there and, and not just change things to change things. But usually if I'm brought in to rewrite something, that train is moving already. There is potentially a director involved. There are definitely a studio executives and producers involved in shaping it. And they already know what they don't like. And so they're coming to you to be like, they're telling you what they want it to be. And then the job is to sort of interpret those notes into something actionable. These are your concerns with this draft. How do I address your concerns and, and figuring out what that is? Because they, they usually come, they, you might pitch them on the rewrite. They might have told, you know, if it's an open writing assignment, they might have said, hey, we have a draft and here are our problems. And you go in and pitch those things. If it's in production or like on a route to production, like you've got a director who's just like, you know, it's a grocery list and it's just, you know, I need this, I need this and I need this. And then you are trying to bring as much of yourself into the things that they've asked for, basically. This is my home. Get out now. No, this is not your house. Now, what's your name? My name is Bill Wilkins. And I'm 72 years old. What do you make of that voice? Sounds confused. Is he senile? The voice on this tape is coming from an 11-year-old girl. They're calling it England's Amityville. There is a family that desperately needs our help. After everything we've seen, there isn't much that rattles either of us anymore. But this one, this one still haunts me. Allow me then to dive into The Conjuring 2. I love this movie so much for reasons I'm about to explain to you. And I was extremely happy. We'll talk about Conjuring 3. Each one of these movies is built on a, a true case from Ed and Lorraine Warren. It's an opportunity because you can explore different countries, different decades. You know, Conjuring 2 takes place in the 70s and, and 3 is in 81. And it keeps each movie fresh and different from the others. And I was reading that what excited you the most about the Enfield case was the number of outside witnesses right. and the documentation. So I wonder, when you guys are brainstorming, how do you take a series of just events and documents and turn them into a three-act horror film? Right. Well, I mean, the first part of the question, like, you know, choosing a case. The Enfield case was was picked before I ever came on. Uh, Carrie and Chad Hayes uh, had, had done a draft that I was coming in to rewrite because they, they weren't able to continue. My understanding of the thought process on that one was really, as you're talking about going to other countries, like the international aspect of it felt like this is why we're going to come back and tell another one of these, right? It's not just recycling the same setting or even the same genre necessarily, you know, there are different types of hauntings. And I think for Enfield, it was the international aspect of it. And then for three, James really wanted to just shake things up and get out of haunted houses. The tricky thing with a sequel, no matter what you're sequelizing, is that everyone wants it to be completely different, but also exactly the same, right? They wanna go and they wanna have the same experience, but they want everything to be different. So it's like, how do you balance, like, I'm gonna grab enough of what you liked and bring enough new stuff in that doesn't upset the apple cart that it feels both new and familiar at the same time. And I think, you know, James's idea with, with getting out of the haunted house is like, can we take the tropes of this series, these scares, move them outside of a house and put them, hang them on a different kind of story? For Conjuring 3, it's, uh, you know, more of a procedural, you know, it's, it's more of a, a mystery kind of story that's taking us away from the haunted house that we start off at the beginning to solve the mystery of how this haunting came to be. So it's really about, in terms of like finding the cases, it's about figuring out how is this case different than the others? How do we tell this story without just recycling stuff that we've done before, but still have the opportunity to recycle if we want to, you know, to, to, to pay off, you know, what, what people want to see. And then the other part of the question... You start with documents and interviews and you have to turn those into a three-act structure. The true life aspect of the story... There are three aspects to it. First is the the real life case, right? And those real life incidents, like uh, uh, James is always interested in making sure that the story is Googleable, right? So there are enough things in that movie that you can go home and be like, 
oh, come on, did that really happen? And then you Google it and you go, oh my God, it did. And that sort of lends credibility to the things that you had to made up, right? Because there are things you, you in order to turn it into a story, you have to fictionalize it so that you have this sort of fun treasure hunt for the audience where it's like, these are the real things. These are the things that weren't real and figuring out which is which by b- being able to Google these and see these stories and see photographs of the real people. Those are sort of like those fun Easter egg breadcrumbs that, that people latch onto that, you know, you know, make them wonder, did this happen or didn't happen? Or, or what is the true story of it? Those things tend to be either act one or first half because they're usually little stories that are very intriguing but don't have resolutions, right? You know, it's, it's little bits of strange things that happened, right, that they can't explain. And they, most, most of the time, those are act, your act one beats, right? For act two, though, what I found most beneficial in both Conjuring 2 and 3 was talking to the real people because we played off most of the, these real incidents in act one, Act two is more like, how have these incidents affected these people? And when you talk to them, you can Google what happened, but to talk to the real people, you can find out how did it feel when this happened? What was it like in your life when this happened? And that turned out to be most valuable because it it takes something that really doesn't have a story and, and gives it an emotional core. A lot of these hauntings, again, they don't hang on a three-act structure, right? Like the, the Enfield case went on for years and years and years, and in reality, just sort of tapered off over time. Eventually, it just stopped happening. There was no dramatic conclusion. It just stopped happening. So you're like, how do I tell this as a story? The story is, what's it like to be in that haunted house? And there's a scene in Conjuring 2, like when they first land and they, they're investigating and Lorraine goes out back and she is sitting on the swing with Janet and asking Janet all these questions. The bulk of that scene is my interview with the real Janet and the things that she says were going on there about like, you know, she can't sleep at home. So she's always tired at school. And so the school nurse lets her sleep in the clinic because she's so tired because the the hauntings keep her up all night. Like that actually happened. And and Janet was telling me this story and her eyes are welling with tears. And you're you're seeing that there's this emotional haunting that goes along with it. Do you know why I'm here? Well, your mom's told me about what's been going on and I'm here to help if I can. Would you like to talk about it? I'm just so tired. I can't sleep here. I used to go to the medical room at school and they let me sleep there. So I'm so worn out. And now I can't even do that. Everyone's afraid of me. It makes me feel like I'm not normal. You know, whatever is doing this to you wants you to feel this way. But why? Because that's what makes it stronger. And so that then becomes the second act. And then by the time you get to third act is usually where we have left reality behind because we can't provide that sort of climax and complete resolution. And so you have to kind of concoct this sort of like, okay, here, here's how it ends to be a satisfying film. And hopefully, you know, we always end with, you know, the real photographs of the real people to bring it back to like, okay, this really did happen. But that, the, the end is usually, you know, where we're fabricating because it's not a movie otherwise. How do you try to gradually sprinkle the scares through acts one and two in a way that feels emotional and gradual to remind people that it is a horror film, but also have that roller coaster pace wise? It's funny, when I was uh, going into Do Conjuring 2, you know, I went back to the first one. I was not involved in the first one. So I studied that one and looked at what we were doing for 2. And it really wasn't until I was sort of finished with 2 that it really occurred to me that those movies don't hang that much on plot, right? It struck me that there is a, a real similarity between horror and comedy in that First off, they both elicit sort of an involuntary response, right? You are either scared or you think that's funny and it's eliciting this response. It's not, it's, 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 it's very primitive. But because it's such a primitive uh, reaction, you know, for the comedy, as long as it's getting funnier, you're fine, right? And you get to the end of act two of the comedy and there's some tiny little thing that lets you 
signal that we're in for the end of the movie and like sets up like the third act in the eighties in the eighties comedy, it would have been like, there's going to be a contest right <laughs> at the end of act two. And that the resolution of the contest will somehow solve the problem for the, for the people in, in the eighties comedy and horror. It's, it's kind of the same way. Like conjuring two is not very plot driven. It just gets scarier and it feels like the plot is moving somewhere because the movie's getting scarier. And then you, we set up this tiny little thing that like, here's what we have to do to go to defeat it. And 10 minutes later, the movie's over. So it's not so much doing a lot of plot. It's about just making sure your scares keep getting scarier, you know, that your scariest thing isn't in the first five minutes. It's, you know, you don't peek out too early or it feels like a movie, not necessarily just because of the structure, but because also it's just getting scarier as you go along. I I say that, but the Conjuring 3 is then completely different, right? Because we're doing a procedural, it's very plot heavy. So I had to attack that one completely differently. I had to do sort of what you're talking about, which is I had to plot out a mystery and then go back and be like, okay, here's how the mystery is going to unfold. What's the conjuring way of making this mystery unfold? What is a scary place for this clue to be? What's the scariest way for them to learn this information? And then go back and do it that way. Whether it's a nun or the crooked man for Billy, I think it's interesting to study antagonists in some way that are emotionally specific and, and designed to attack a protagonist's weakness. For Lorraine, that's my understanding. I'll I'll give the exact quote in a moment, that there was a more, um, generic is the wrong term, a more universal, ambiguous figure. Yeah. And to corrupt her faith, what better character than a nun? James had this to say about it. Quote, initially there was a different demonic entity haunting the family in the film. During editing, we realized that this horned demon was too out of left field tonally and the story needed something more grounded and personal. Something that would take Lorraine's faith and try to corrupt it. And that's when the demon nun was born. We went back, replaced all the horn demon with the nun during additional photography. Close quote. It's funny how we wound up with with the nun. Like the one the one thing James doesn't talk about, but because he's 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 too modest, is the fact that like everybody was fine with the movie with that demon. Like it was the, it was testing well. The audience was scared, and the studio was happy. And James was just like, "We can do better." It could be scarier. I, I don't I don't accept this. Like, I know they're satisfied, but I don't want to just satisfy them. I want them to come away with something that is really memorable. And everything he does, he always comes back and pushes it and can it be better. And even when everyone's saying, yes, it's 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 great. We love it. He's like, OK, but I still want it to be better. And so that's when he came back to let's come up with something better than the demon, because the demon, as you say, is sort of this generic presence. And the other aspect to it, you know, the thing that also started getting him started was he has this idea, too, that that big demon that they made, which was it's a great practical effect. You couldn't see the actor's eyes. It was a suit. And to him, the eyes are your connection to that creature. And so even like Crooked Man, like his hat has got like little holes in it. So you can see his eyes. He looked at the demon and was like, we need something with eyes. We need something that's more human that we can relate to. And I think that gets back to a little bit of what you're talking about. You know, these specific antagonists. It's about not just having a relationship point with those characters, but also to the audience, right? To make them sort of connect in, in a way so it's scary to them. And sort of our, our demonic creature, as cool as it was, was clearly inhuman, and, and the nun, there's some sort of connection to it because it was a real person. It was, it was, you know, Bonnie in a costume. That real aspect of it, I think, really helped. You weren't as detached as you sometimes are while watching a special effect because you know it's a special effect. And in terms of just like making it specific to character, if you can always to try to make it specific to character is helpful because that the scare isn't just something jumping out and going boo it's specifically aimed at that character movies are are, all about characters overcoming challenge indiana jones uh, you know the well of souls could have been filled with spiders but he's not afraid of spiders he's afraid of snakes so you bring him the thing that he's most afraid of because that makes that obstacle 
more personal and more challenging for the character. You can't always do that, but you know, if you can find the thing that's like, why does this horrible thing that's happening sort of resonate specifically with this person, you get more drama out of it. Indy, why does the floor move? Give me your torch. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? You have spoken about the fact that what makes Orphan extra creepy is the fact that the person you're trying to uh, protect yourself from is a child. But I just want to ask you, talking about children and, and scary stories, I guess it goes back to fairy tales such as Red Riding Hood and all these things, and I think there's something inherently unsettling about it. Why do you think audiences lean in when, when horror films are explored through the eyes of a child? I would actually even take a broader view of that, and I, I don't, not to get too uh, down the rabbit hole with it, but I think, you know, there is an aspect of the, the reasoning for that. I think this is going to sound weird. I, I will circle back around and make it make sense. But I think part of it comes from our culture of toxic masculinity and sexism, because it's not just children in these horror movies, it's women and children right? It's a woman in peril. It's a child in peril because we have this idea that <laughs> I think subconsciously, well, if it was a dude, he probably would have done something. Not me. Like in real life, dude with a chainsaw comes through here. I'm as fucked as anybody, right? I'm screaming my head off and I'm running away, but we don't want to see men like that. We want to see the dude who like stands up and does something and he probably could have handled this. That's the toxic masculinity part. Like, we can't allow men to appear weak. But we allow ourselves to see children as weak because they're physically smaller and less in control of their world. And you give them permission to be scared and to run away and to, like, give them credit when they figure something out. Because you're like, wow, I didn't expect the kid to figure this out. But we also do the same thing with women sometimes, right? You put a woman in that situation and you now have permission, even as a guy in the audience, to be afraid because our perception is that the, the woman wouldn't be able to do anything. She'd just have to scream and run away. It's about making the, the characters that we as a culture perceive as vulnerable, I think, right? And we sort of see women and children as being vulnerable. Um, and we don't give ourselves, you know, permission to be like, oh, well, why couldn't the woman be just as capable as the man and defeat this thing? We immediately go to, oh, she'd be screwed. We allow ourselves to see ourselves as vulnerable through those characters. As a culture, I think the, the, the reason we, we have women and children as protagonists in horror movies is that, A, we're we not ready to see women as strong. We're getting there and it's getting better, but we also simultaneously are not allowed to portray men as vulnerable um, because we're like, oh, well, he's, he's weak, you know? He's a weak dude. Like, look at him running away from that. Whereas that's not authentic. That's not who we are as people. We need to see all aspects of all people portrayed and, and we're not doing that yet. Since we did talk about, you know, Conjuring 2, I was curious to ask you about your relationship with James Wan specifically, because I noticed a pattern of him being involved and in getting story by credit, whether it's Conjuring or Aquaman. Yeah. And it brings me to believe that he really is passionate about trying to shape that story with the writers. And this is what you had to say about him. Quote, James' strength as a filmmaker is knowing how to police a crowd, no matter what genre he's working with. When it comes to the expectations of a film, nobody puts more pressure on James Wan than James Wan. How do you think he not only brings the best out of you as a storyteller, but makes your own writing scarier when directing the film? James is, he, he is the perfect collaborator, you know, in, in that I've liked all of the directors that I, I have worked with. I, I've never worked with either of these extremes, luckily. But on one extreme, you have you know, someone who is maybe not super secure in all their decisions, right? And so they're, they're maybe open to too much feedback or too much influence, right? Where they haven't quite found the movie yet, right? And then you have other people who have like found the movie so resolutely that there is no budging from that. And James hits the sweet spot where 
he is the captain of the ship. He knows exactly where he wants to go. And that's why he has that story credit on it because he has crafted, he can tell you these are the beasts that, of this story that I want to tell. And we are going to go there. And this is our destination. But then he'll kick it to everyone else around him to be like, what's the best way to get there? And each department head kind of gives their input of what they feel like is the best way to get there. And, and he balances that. He's very open to other people's ideas, but at the same time, keeping you en route to your destination, which is really helpful. And he and I also just have, we've done enough now that we have a nice rhythm where, you know, he will kick an idea to me and I'll be like, oh, you know what that makes me think of is this. And I'll kick that, he'll kick that back to me and be like, oh, well, that's, that, that has given me this idea. And it just, it kind of snowballs. We kind of brainstorm together and it eventually it accretes enough mass that he's like, I see the sequence now. And when he sees the sequence, he's seen it. Like he, he has figured out what he wants to shoot. And that's what you go do. He obviously adapts on the fly because production is unpredictable. But aside from like production related issues, like once he shows up at set, he like, he's ready to shoot that script. That's the movie he wants to make. And he's not finding it anymore because he's found it. And that I find very gratifying in that he knows when he's arrived where he wants to be and, and stops messing around with it. Do you know when the voice is going to speak? Sometimes. And when it does, does it feel like it's coming from inside you? No. More like it's coming from behind me, like I'm being used. Does it ever say things just to you that only you can hear? What does it say? It said it wants to hurt you. When did it say that? Right now. What is your relationship with pitching and do you enjoy it as part of the, you know, the studio process? Oh man, no, I, I despise it, but <laughs> it's a necessary evil. It's always struck me as really ironic that like, If you want to write, you're probably someone who spends a lot of time in your head, right? You're probably someone who's very comfortable alone, working solo and spending this time in your head. And it's monstrous that the way you have to get a job is to go out in public <laughs> and interact with people in a sort of completely different skill set. I'm not a naturally gregarious person who's the life of the party kind of person. And I, I feel like most writers I know really typically aren't. So pitching is a completely different skill set from writing. And one of the things I learned transitioning from writing scripts to hone my craft and transitioning from there to actually getting work was to realize that I'd only done half the work. There's a whole other skill set you need to hone, which is pitching. And it has nothing to do with writing. They're diametrically opposed processes. And it took a long time before I felt comfortable pitching. I'm pretty at ease with it now. But I mean, when I was first getting started, I would be on my way to meetings and just the whole way, just like every fiber of my being was telling me to like turn the car around and go home because I was just like such a bundle of anxiety because this is not what I did. Pitching is about sort of, you know, putting on a little dog and pony show. And I want to be at home in my head writing a script. So it's definitely something that, As people work on their honing their craft, which is the most important thing, honing pitching skills is every bit as important, I think, because certainly if you're going to go after work for hire, if you're going to write specs, maybe it's less important. But um, if you're going after work for hire in jobs or trying to set stuff up based on treatments or try to sell your, your, your concept before specking it, it's a huge part of getting those jobs. I mean, I don't think there's any kind of magic formula. The ratio of pitches to jobs successfully landed, it, it's not good. So I think, you know, part of the problem is you spend so many time doing pitches that don't work. You start to wonder, well, was it the pitch, right? Am I a bad pitcher? And maybe it's not that. It's just these are the odds. I think probably the best nugget that I ever heard It's not as if you're trying to convince them to make your movie. You have to convince them that this movie already exists. It's in theaters. You just saw it with some friends and you're trying to tell them about it, right? You're like, oh my God, you have to go see this movie. Let me tell you about it. It's so good. And then you pitch them like that. 
the goal of the pitch, I think, beyond just sort of making them get interested in the story, a big part of it is, to me, a psychological trick to make them feel confident that this already exists, right? Because on their end, studio executives have sort of a, a, a thankless job in that, like, they're kind of divining tea leaves. They're trying to figure out what's going to work. What are people going to like? And the vast majority of them are doing that. It, it's a different skill set. So they, they, they sort of look at what writers do. And I'm not sure how to put this. Like, it's not their skill set. So it, there's a big leap of faith for them that they're going to trust you to go do this thing. So the pitch is, yes, you want to convey all of your ideas and you want to like make them see the movie and you want to give them some very clear trailer moments, right? Your, your pitch could contain a lot of trailer moments that they so they start to see the movie. But at the end of the day, it's about making them feel confident in this decision to hire you, that this feeling that they have in this pitch will somehow be translated into a concrete document that they can go take and turn into a movie. Before I ask you about the last project of today, I figured it might be interesting to ask you about your relationship with the projects that were not made, or I should say haven't yet been made. Sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you started out writing a script for Doc Savage, and since you've been hired for Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Dungeons and Dragons and Nightmare on Elm Street, on a creative level for you, how do you keep passionate about the scripts that just have been in development for so long? Yeah, no, I can't think of a single thing that I've written sort of as an adult or as a professional that I haven't considered revisiting. But one of the things I picked up when I was an assistant and I was watching Frank Darabont, I talked to earlier before about, you know, watching him be a writer and seeing what the, the lifestyle of being a writer is. One of the big takeaways I saw from that was I saw the roller coaster of it. I saw the sort of like the highs and the lows and the like, this thing's going to get made and then it's not going to get made. I remember specifically, there was one dream project he had, and he had the star attachment that he needed. And I went home to Ohio for Christmas break, and we were going to come back and make that movie. And when I came back from Christmas break, it had completely fallen apart. It happened that quickly, and he, he was devastated. I don't know if I'm telling tales out of school, but he was, he was someone who doesn't get involved in a project unless he's all into it. He's not someone who just sort of phones in something. So it's very emotionally, it can be crushing when those things happen. Because, And I'm sort of the same way, and I'm very emotional. I'm very, uh, I have a tendency to be on the roller coaster. So to have had the experience of seeing him go through that, I kind of, when I finally became professional, made a choice to try my best to detach somewhat from the roller coaster And my philosophy sort of was that the first draft of anything is mine. And that's my goal, right? I'm in this room by myself writing this thing and nobody can tell me what to do because nobody's seen it yet. So my goal ultimately is doing this one draft for myself and then understanding that once I've typed fade out and I've turned it in, it's outside of my control. I don't get to decide what happens to it anymore. The, it is out in the universe and it will either turn out great or it will turn out terrible or it will die on the vine. And I can't get super hung up on that. I have to take my satisfaction from the draft that I completed that was mine that I can put on a shelf and say, I wrote that. I'm not totally successful in doing it, but it's, it's a trick to just sort of feel like that is an end in of itself as opposed to a means towards making a movie. That makes sense. Again, it's, it's difficult to do, but I mean, if you stay in this sort of mindset where um, getting this script made in its most perfect form is the only thing that will give you satisfaction, sometimes all you can do is like watch and scream because you don't have any control over what's happening to it. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. You okay there? Jesus. I think I hurt someone. In 1981, Arnie Johnson pled not guilty. We think this family was cursed. 
by reason of demonic possession. I am not going before a grand jury and saying he was possessed by demons. Whatever happened that day, that was not Arnie. The last project that I wanted to ask you about, obviously, is is the new Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And we did touch on the fact that you and James, even though he may not be directing this and he may not be penning the screenplay, he's very involved in story. I just wanted to provide a little bit of context for, for people and, and understand that this film explores the courtroom aspects of the Johnson case. The first time in the history of American law that the concept of demonic possession was mentioned as a reason for committing manslaughter. So I was wondering, between the courtroom angle, but especially this being the first solo credit for you, David, that's what excited me a lot. How did the project evolve from the way you thought you were going to approach it to the way you did? I think going in the third time, we, we had a, a different fundamental question. Doing a sequel, sometimes it's just about like, okay, this movie has to be worthy of being a sequel. It has to be a worthy companion piece of this first movie. How do I make a sequel to that movie? And when you get to three, the question starts to be, okay, this is a franchise. What is this franchise? Are we going to make more of these? What is that going to look like? So like for two, you know, it's more of a companion piece. It's more like, okay, this is a sequel. We're in another haunted house. We're doing a similar story, but we're trying to make it different. Now we have to be like, okay, we've made three of these, but maybe we're going to make four. And are we going to keep going to haunted houses? Are we, is that all this is? What is this as a franchise? And sort of early on, as we were sort of looking at cases, the idea of sort of what the franchise could be. My, my answer to that was that the franchise is the X-Files with two molders and no scullies, right? Where it's just, they can travel the world and it doesn't have to be a haunted house every time. It can be some sort of unexplained thing that they go and, you know, of course turns out to be real because they're the Warrens and they go and they sort of investigate and they solve this problem. You know, the one thing that we really sort of played down in this version, I guess, is actually because you mentioned the courtroom aspect. Like we really got nervous going in, like how much of this can be in a courtroom. And we minimized that somewhat because I didn't want to get stuck in a courtroom. I didn't want to have a couple of notable exceptions to the contrary. They're not scary places, you know. I mean, obviously there have been horror movies with strong, you know, uh, Exorcism, Emily Rose that make it work. But I was worried about sort of getting bogged down in that. So one of the things that we wound up doing with this one more than we have in the past is cobbled together like a lot of stories that they've told and a lot of cases that they worked on, right? And so instead of like following one specific case from beginning to fruition, at a certain point, Lorraine in the 70s was consulted to work with police numerous times. And so we took a couple of those anecdotes and worked them into the story. So it is still you know, from their files, but we kind of took the opportunity to sort of cherry pick some of their other experiences and put them in and reframe them as if they were part of this story. We've kind of like, instead of just taking the one story, we, we, we've tried to stay faithful to the individual stories or the spirit of the story with not necessarily the letter. Just to touch on this real life aspect of it, it's truly unfortunate that we did lose Lorraine not too long ago, but I do think it's very special that that you and James had her present at least through part of the creative process over the course of these movies. And I wonder for you as an interviewer, we were talking about for Conjuring 2, the idea of you speaking to some of the Hodgson's family members. And I wonder, do you have a process for for interviewing or note-taking or just trying to grab anecdotes and, and stories and turn them into potential set pieces or ideas? Typically, I mean, like my number one thing is to just make them comfortable and get them to talk. I don't want to try to go into things going like, oh, I really want this part of the story. I want them to talk about that. I kind of try to wind them up and let them tell me what they want to talk about because they will be most eloquent about the stuff that they want to talk about. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll guide it if there are specific places because some of this stuff is hard for them to talk about. Um, and so you have to kind of like push a little bit to get some of it. But it, the second thing that I really try to do or the, the, the questions that I ask are really about how did it feel 
to have this happen because you can go online and find no end of resources about what happened and the events and the dates and the stories that were told. But what you're never going to find is like how it felt to be that person. And that's, you know, where I think the most value comes from the interview. Again, I've only done this twice you know, for, for two and three, but I think the other thing that has come across for the, both interviews that I've done is that they know their story sounds crazy. They know when they tell this story, people think they're crazy. And they, so they come in really guarded and afraid that that's going to happen again to them. Certainly with the Hodgson's, you know, they're still traumatized by that. And part of it is really just making them feel at ease and making them understand we're not going to make fun of you. We're going to be earnest with your story and we're not going to, we're going to do everything in our power to make you not look foolish. And then they feel safe telling you some of this stuff. Finding that emotional piece of it, I think is the key because you're going to have two different groups of people watching this movie who are, you know, that never happened. They made it all up, but I'm enjoying this movie. And then you all have the other people who are just like, no, I really believe these things happen. And, and who, who is right and who is wrong? I, I, I try not to judge or say, but the one thing that I found, again, both times is whether you believe that these hauntings happen to them or not, the people telling these stories are haunted and they are haunted by demons. And you can decide whether that means literal demons or emotional demons, but they are haunted and they have demons. And so I try to approach the story from that standpoint that we're, we're depicting the literal haunting that happened to these people. And at the same time, there, there's this emotional haunting happening as well. I'm really happy you talked about emotion because we spent a generous amount of our conversation talking about scares and talking about structure. But I think you know it better than anyone. At the end of the day, like caring about characters in these kind of films is extremely important because as dark and demonic as you can get, especially the Conjuring movies, I'm I'm not a very spiritual person, but I do believe they are an opportunity to show the light and the love in their relationships. You know, one of my favorite moments in, in Conjuring 2 is is when Ed sits down and starts singing Elvis Presley. Wise men say only fools rush in. Thank you. Hey, don't laugh now. But I can't help falling in love. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I like the idea of you guys trying to disguise a love story as a horror film. And I wonder emotionally where you wanted to take this relationship of the Warrens in, in Conjuring 3. For sure. Like, I mean, I don't even think we're trying to hide that it's a love story. I think that it is a love story. And I think they're horror movies. They're going to, you know, if blockbuster video still existed, you'd find them in the horror section. But both times I've approached them more as a love story from the, from the start to be like, what is their relationship? What is the challenge that their relationship is going to go through in this movie is a really key part of it right from the start. We find the case, and then the next piece is what what's going to happen to the Warren's relationship in this movie. Look, this, I'm, I'm just sort of feel like I'm responding to what people responded to in the first movie, which is people really enjoy their love story. They really enjoy their romance and... I think part of it is that we've given them a sort of fairy tale romance. That we've given them this this relationship that everybody wishes they had, where you have this partner who trusts you implicitly. That there's literally like nothing you could tell them is too crazy, and they will they will always 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 believe you. I think we all fantasize about finding that person, and so that's really really important. And then I think. And it's, it's not like a, a parallel story at all. It's, it's actually very intrinsic to the main story, the ghost story, because, you know, underneath the ghost story is family drama. And I, I, I sort of see like the, the Warrens and their sort of perfect love and perfect relationship operating almost as 
family counselors because yes, they're coming in as ghostbusters in, a, in plot terms, but in character aspects, basically, if you look at their, the, like the character piece of it and the emotional piece of it, they come in and they find families that are fractured and traumatized and they help them heal. Yes, they get rid of the ghosts, but really what they're doing is they're taking these families who are in bad places when we first find them and leaving them better than they were when, when they found them. And that's, I think, a big part of what people respond to. You know, it's, it's very rare for a horror movie to have a happy ending, and the Conjuring movies always do. And I think it's partly because it is sort of grounded in this sort of emotional family place, like, like The Exorcist, which is ultimately the darkest horror movie ever made. You would not even be able to make that movie today. But it has a happy ending because at the end of the day, really, it's about a woman with a sick daughter who doesn't know what to do. And, and in the end, she's cured. And I think that's part of what makes it so resonant and, and relatable. David, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with the time. It was an absolute blast to have you on. This was fantastic. No worries at all. I'm glad to be a help. Thanks very much. Wise men say... And there you have it, folks. Thank you to David for calling in to record this episode. And to Eric for taking care of the final mixing, and Lexi and Caroline, who make sure you can find the podcast across all social media platforms. David's new film, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, is now streaming on HBO Max and in theaters all around the world. If you enjoy your program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show. Send your favorite episode to a friend. To help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. Fall.